James chapter 1, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of the Lord. Well, so we are doing a series on the book of James, and as you may remember, months ago we did a series on the book of Galatians, and coincidentally, in the 500th year of the Reformation, this being the 500th anniversary of the time which Martin Luther uh, nailed the 95 Thesis on the door of Wittenberg Cathedral, we're actually approaching that very day here in the month of October. Uh, One of the things that I deeply appreciate about this lectionary that we are using is that it coincidentally uh, has placed Galatians and James in our reading schedule for this year. And one of the things that I said last week, I just want to reiterate, is many people dismiss the letter of James, James's epistle, because they find it either too confusing or or seemingly contradictory. If you were here last week, we, we read a quote from a a wonderful Reformed Baptist theologian named John Gill, in which he, he said that Paul's doctrine, or Paul's wonderful explanation of the doctrine of justification, how we come to be declared righteous by God, and the book of James, Paul's writings and James's writings, have no conflict at all. And so it's our goal through this series, as we're reading it, to hear James writing about the nature of salvation and the warnings against false deception or, or spiritual deception as being one as being part of one scripture. That is to say the scriptures are complete in their unity, they're without error, they're without contradiction. So to the degree and quality that Paul warns his hearers 
and also extols the virtues of the gospel, to that same degree, James is also warning his hearers and extolling the virtues of the gospel. And one of the things I want to show in today's reading is just how loving James's letter actually is. James clearly gives a warning against deception in verse 16. And many people, when they read this uh, passage, they are confused whether verse 16 should apply to the end of the passage we read last week, and it would have been verse 1 through 16, or if it actually is not the beginning of a new section. And that it's my position that James 1.16 is really his summary statement at the beginning. He's talking in this section of his letter about spiritual deception, and then he begins to unpack what that means. So at first, he emphasizes the Father's grace in salvation, his kind-heartedness, his goodwill in bringing them to life through one vehicle, namely the Word. And if you missed the Sunday School Hour today, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it on the podcast. It was a wonderful declaration of the power of God's Word. And really, we're going to see that's James's main point, is do not ignore the Word. Do not presume to have heard the Word unless you do it. He then warns them against fleshly anger, and it's not just a general anger in life to circumstances. I believe he's specifically rebuking anger against the Word, and we're going to see how we get there. Then he explains how one should complete or fulfill or accomplish the word. That is to say, God, as he speaks his word, performs his word in us by the Holy Spirit, and he calls us to participate in that. All of the glory is due to him. All of the energy is from his spirit. And yet we must, as James tells us, do the word. And, and as we know, that is exactly what Paul also tells us to do is to accomplish the word. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is, at, it is God who is at work within you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is, this is one scripture's that we are one scripture that we're reading. And then finally, James has a capstone, a, a proof test, whether or not you are in authentic religion or false religion. And just at the onset, uh, I just want to say that the word religion it gets a bad rap today. In modern parlance, we have labeled everything that religion is as a bad thing. But in the way the scriptures use the term, There should be a character and quality of life. There should be preferences and behaviors. And by that, James means what true religion is. True religion is worked out in keeping oneself unstained from the world. And we're going to see that quite clearly. So James has warned his hearers in the prior section about the necessity of perseverance. And then he goes on to warn them again concerning the nature of self-deception. And one of the things that I would encourage you to do while you read the scriptures, this is something my father taught me and emphasizes to this day, is to to read the reverse negative. If he warns them to not be deceived, it is possible for James's audience to be deceived. And this is very, it's very helpful to have a correct doctrine of the church when we understand these. Do we mean that James is warning real Christians who've really been made alive again that they can continue to be deceived? I do not believe he is warning that. He is warning that his hearers are in a congregation. They are in a group of people. And there are some who believe themselves to be part of this church, as we've confessed in the creed today, this holy church. And yet they are living as unholy 
deceived people. And so he's giving them warnings. The gospel is not just to be preached in the public square. The gospel is to be preached in the church because there are many unsaved in the church. James says, do not be deceived, my brothers. Now, in in that regard, he calls them brothers, and he says there is some relation with them. So is he speaking only to unsaved people in the church? No. He is speaking to unsaved people in the church. He is also speaking to those who are saints, who have been sanctified, who have been washed, but from time to time wax or wane in the quality and zeal of their faith. He's warning Christians against backsliding or engaging in spiritual sloth and spiritual anger. He warns them specifically against self-deception in this passage in two natures, contrasting hypocritical anger and spiritual sloth. And by this hypocritical anger, we're going to see him give a warning against anger that comes from hearing the word. He contrasts those two with the true effects of the Father's grace. He says in verse 26, do not be, or excuse me, verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Remember last week, he had just encouraged them towards perseverance, and now he is directing them to make sure that they're persevering in truth. They are not just persevering in a form of religion, but as we're going to see in true, complete, real religion. So, understanding our susceptibility to false religion, James's warnings apply to us, and they remind us of our necessity of repentance throughout our spiritual walk. It is very important, especially as young Christians or, or Christians with a number of earthly years on your belt, that you recognize the importance of continuing repentance throughout your life. That is to say, when you first come to Christ, you acknowledge your sin in a general sense, and over time, as you read the word, as we're going to see, James uses a metaphor here of looking into the word like a mirror. Uh, As you continue to be a Christian on your Christian walk, God will, through his word, spirit, and church, he will bring to your attention continuing corruption. That is, parts of your character, behavior, ways of thinking, which are under corruption. They are still tainted by the effects of the, of the fall. That is why Paul tells his hearers to be renewed in the spirit of their mind. They have to continue to be renewed. So James's warnings are not just for the unsaved in the church or even the backsliding in who are authentic believers, but also those who are believers who maybe they're not drifting off into sin, but they've already begun to approach life as a sort of coasting, as a presuming upon grace, not utilizing it faithfully, but presuming that God will just perform my sanctification, that God will just accomplish the maturity that I so desperately need. Yes, he will do that, but as we see, James and the rest of the scriptures indeed call us to participate with the grace of God. Again, speaking clearly, we do not bring anything to the table but simple obedience. And that obedience itself is rooted in the power and and energy of the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, at some point, the rubber meets the road. I, I love this phrase from Douglas Wilson, your theology will be worked out of your fingertips. Whatever you believe will become manifested through your life. And that is exactly what James is warning. He's he's warning, do not presume to believe unless it is being worked out. In the very root of this spiritual deception, whether it's anger against the word of God, spiritual sloth, a sort of coasting through the spiritual life, 
in that root, what it, whenever that takes hold in a person's life, at the root of that deception is some belief that my worth, energy, performance, maturity, good qualities come from me. And the, the way that that begins to happen is very subtle. Often the enemy, whether it be a demon or, or someone speaking to you and you taking a compliment the wrong way, boy, Brother John, that was a good sermon, wasn't it? Oh, yes, it really was. And then I go home and I harbor that, man, I'm a good preacher. Or, or your boss comes to you and says, hey, thanks for doing a great job. That's a really wonderful uh, way that you handle that problem. And then you, you go home that night and you think to yourself, man, I'm, I'm getting it together. I'm getting rewarded. I'm, I'm favorable circumstances. These are the roots that the enemy begins to sow into a person's heart. In, and they do not happen they're not manifest overnight. They take time, and then suddenly they spring up, and the root is taken hold. This is what I believe James is warning against. He's warning against the sort of subtle sitting under the Word of God and not doing the Word of God, and part of that begins with a lack of thanksgiving. How do you know whether the root of self-worth has begun to take hold? It is if you stop giving thanks to God for everything. One of my uh, favorite movies that I've seen in the last few years is a movie by Nathan, uh, is it Nathan Wilson? Nate Wilson, uh, who is Doug Wilson's son. It's called The River Thief. And it's not exactly a movie you should watch with your children. There's violence in it. Christian movies can have violence, by the way. Um, And and part of the, the whole theme of the movie is this rebellious teenager who's been given a pretty a pretty bad shake, so to speak, in life, a pretty bad hand, if you will, and yet he goes through life just taking and using for his own purposes, no matter if it belongs to him or not. He's the thief, and at one point he meets this character who tells him everything you get, this very breath, that next heartbeat, all of its gift, so bend your head, or I think he says bend your neck, and the point is that he's calling this young man to repent, He's not using overly Christianese, but he's calling him to repent because his whole outlook in life is a lack of thanksgiving. And that's exactly where James begins to explain to his hearers, this is where your deception has already begun in. He's saying, you're not giving thanks to the Father. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow Due to change. That is to say, James is commending them to, re, to reshape their perspective on reality, understanding that everything that is good is coming from God. And what does that imply? Those good things which are at work in my life are gift. They're grace. They're not of my own. I didn't produce them on my own. I should not take pride in them. I think that's what James is putting his finger, finger on. So all friendship, all earthly goods, all technology, talents, skills, manufacturing, economics, transportation, logis- logistics, computer processors, algorithms, all of it, everything that God has given to man that is good comes from him. And because of that, he is due thanksgiving and fealty and humility. He's due thanksgiving because he's the source of it. He's due fealty and humility because we did not create them of our own, but rather they come from him. And then James presses on specifically the gift 
of salvation. Because he is the, the source, he is due thanksgiving and humble submission, and his gifts are most clearly manifest in the root of his gift, which is this, verse 18, of his own will he brought forth us by the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So much is packed into this verse. I just want to emphasize James is pushing on this button of a pride that is in his hearers, in some of his hearers, which begins to trust and rest in self. That, that they begin to look at the good gifts that they have as somewhat depending upon them and not understanding the source and origin of those good gifts. The Father who spoke light into being has also spoken to us and brought us forth in the word of life. I was listening last night to a new worship song out of Hillsongs. I deeply appreciate modern worship songs, especially the ones that are somewhat poetic. When we listen to the hymns of old and we notice their ornate sentence structure and their specific word choice, we often think, oh, well, that's a wonderful hymn because it's old. And I, I like to understand that, well, a few hundred years from now, the church will look back and which worship songs will they recognize as being beautiful, of worth keeping. And so I heard this worship song last night, and in fact, I want to actually read part of it because it, it brought a clarity to this understanding that the very creator God is also the deliverer God. And the one who spoke the world into existence is also, as James says in this last verse, the one who spoke to us. He drew us forth with his word. So very briefly, I just want to read a few lines. The first verse, it's a very long song. It's actually 10 minutes. It probably won't ever be sung here because they have a band of 30 people and we don't. Um, but one of the beginning one of the beginning verses goes like this, and as you speak, a hundred, uh, sorry, and as you speak, a hundred billion galaxies are born. In the vapor of your breath, the planets form. If the stars were made to worship, so will I. And then the song goes on for four minutes or so, and then it begins to progress from creation to the cross, and the weight of what this, the, the poetry encapsulated in this next word left me on my knees because I finally understood the God who spoke the worlds into existence, it has to be that same God who can take away my sins. He has to be that powerful in order to accomplish salvation. And so I was hearing this verse, and I thought it was going to be a repeat of the first verse, the first time this phrase was said. But then it, sw it switched on me, and I was caught off guard beautifully. It says, and as you speak, a hundred billion failures disappear, where you lost your life so I could find it here. If you left the grave behind, so will I. The, the point that this songwriter was trying to encapsulate was that this powerful creator God is the deliverer God. And if you're familiar with the writings of Paul or James, this is their pattern. They're, they're speaking about the God who gave all good gifts is the God who used his word to call us forth into life. Look at verse 18. Of his own will, that is, it was his will, not ours, he brought us forth by the word of his truth. 
That is the gospel, the, the, the entire summary of God's entire word was spoken through the gospel and it performed a work in us. He brought us forth. It was God at work and in the gospel who transformed James's hearers and brought them to new life. So, over those who were guilty of failure, rebellion, and pride, he has declared the reconciliation that came through the death of his son. That is how he declares righteousness and justification over the elect. He chooses sovereignly of his own will, and then he speaks forth and sanctifies. In James's hearers are the first in, in that James's hearers are the first fruits, they are just the beginning of a great harvest over time and space, over the entire history of this earth. Notice in verse 18 that we should be a kind of first fruits. And the first fruits, if you are familiar with that term, they precede the harvest. James is speaking to a first century church, and here we're now at the 21st century church. And should the Lord tarry, this verse will apply to the 45th century church. James is saying that this is the beginning of a ripple throughout time and space which will continue to happen. God has brought us forth by his word. So, because of this, because all of this is grace, because all of it is done by God's word, he then warns them against anger, but he warns them against anger in the specific context, I believe, of failure to hear God's word so as to do it. Verse 19, know this, my beloved brothers, let every, be, every person be quick to hear. And you, might, you might begin to ask yourself, hear what, James? Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So I, when I read these verses, I hear a contrast between anger and the righteousness of God. And that anger is a result in the hearer's heart against what? Against something that commands the righteousness of God to be made manifest. That is to say, they have to be quick to hear and slow to anger. So the, the implication is what they're hearing They're hearing it the wrong way, and it's transforming through sin to become anger in their heart. I believe that James is specifically rebuking that sort of anger which arises in a fleshly response to God's word. Not a sort of anger that is just circumstantial. You stub your toe, you drop a hammer on your thumb, you you break a a glass in the house, you you have a, a deal fall apart. You have a, a job that's lost. I don't think, he, I, I think that applies. His command applies to those sorts of anger. But I think he's specifically pressing on the anger which is produced in the fleshly heart when it hears the commands of God's law. He contrasts quick to hear with slow to anger. And in this context of what we've just heard, that we've been brought forth by his word and in the verse that's coming next, everything is set on a reception of the word. Again, James contrasts this evil response with a command to be receptive to God's word. Notice the contrast here. Verse 21, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, that is anger, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. What an amazing image. Uh, I was, I was, uh, I think through Facebook, my mom said something about the book of James that I thought was was beautiful, she considers it to be the New Testament book of Proverbs. 
in a sense. The, the language that James uses is very poetic. He's telling them to receive what? The implanted word. It's already in them. He tells them to receive it. So he's saying, do not neglect the word that's already at work in you, but receive it with meekness, for it is able to save your souls. There is a fleshly anger which may arise in a Christian when rebuked by God's word. There are so many times where someone has come to me through circumstances or later after a sermon or what have you, and they will be angry that they felt I was directly calling them out. And truthfully, I, by God's grace, I refrain from that very carefully. But, but it's, very, it's very important to understand Christian ministers are called to preach the word and not their own subjective you know, opinions. And so if you feel called out in a sermon, might it not be the Holy Spirit pressing upon your heart and trying to say, pay attention to this. This is God's grace. This is how he wakes us up from our folly. No amount of nuance or contextualizing can alleviate a fleshly response to God's word. This is so important for us as a church over the next 100 years in America because the sort of cultural opposition towards Christian sexuality, Christian raising of children, Christian ethics and business, Christian uh, understandings about the end of life, all of them are under constant assault and we must get clear that no amount of padding around God's word will ever stop a fleshly response to in anger against God's word. It will produce its effect. The word of God is like a sword and it either divides toward God or it divides away from God. That is to say, God's word is naturally offensive and yet in those places that it offends us, whether it be us or our culture around us, it must be all the more emphasized. If we sheep back or if we sheepishly back away from the area that is under attack, we have not preached the gospel. If we preach the gospel about mercy and sanctification and, and acts of compassion to the poor, and yet we never speak against the sins of our day, then we are not preaching the whole counsel of truth. So, that being said, the word, because it is perfect, and because I, a Christian, am imperfect, I'm being sanctified, there will always be places where my flesh opposes the word, right? Paul says, the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit lusteth against the flesh. That is, they war against each other. They have contrasting desires. That's what James is saying. Do not be angry, but receive the word. Likewise, therefore, the only proper response is to receive the word, and by receive, he means not just hear, not just sit under teaching, not just listen to sermons, but begin to do the word that has been heard. True, receptions of God, a true reception of God's word, therefore, should result in action. The action does not precede the reception. The action does not precede justification, but it is the natural outflow. Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Again, reverting, reading the reverse negative, it might be clear that James is saying it's possible to deceive yourself. James again warns against deceiving ourselves that, in this, that we would be thinking that we are blessed in hearing alone. 
Verse 23, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. Listen closely to this imagery. This is a very important point of, James, of this section of James's letter. He's describing, a, he's using a metaphor to describe a quality of the scripture. Anyone who hears the word and does not do it is like someone who looks in a mirror and then proceeds, leaves, and forgets what he looks like. James' metaphor describes an effect of the word of God, that it shows a person what they look like. Do you understand what James is doing here with this imagery? It's very important to see. James is saying that the word of God reveals something to the person who hears it. Of this same effect, George Herbert wrote in a poem, The Holy Scriptures, part one. There's two parts. This is one of my favorite poems in the entire earth. If this poem did not exist, I would be, I would be uh, negatively affected. To what degree or quality, I don't know. But the, through the Holy Spirit, George Herbert has told me something about the scriptures. Now, this is only a section of the poem. I would encourage you some t- day to go read it. It's uh, from 1663, so you will need to look up some words. But I'm going to read a section in which I believe George Herbert is directly pointing to this verse. And by ladies, just at the onset, he, he means maidens he, of the old style in which a writer would commend himself to the young men and to the young women and to the old men. So he says, ladies, look here. This is the thankful glass that mends the looker's eyes. This is the well that washes what it shows. What can endear thy praise too much? Thou art heaven's lidger here. A lidger is an advocate or someone who is uh, a promoter. Thou art heaven's lidger here working against the states of death and hell. This key phrase right here, this is the well that washes what it shows. And I believe the prior verse This is the thankful glass that mends the looker's eyes. That might even be an allusion to Proverbs, which warns us against looking at the glass of wine deeply and going mad. That is to say, he's he's saying there's a honey and a wine and a beauty of the scriptures, but it is also a mirror. And just like a well that is undisturbed, it reflects. And yet, as George Herbert says, it washes what it shows. I think he's getting onto something here. Herbert's meaning is that scripture, it reveals the problem and reveals the cure. For God's word shows both the horror and filth of sin and the pure blood of Christ to wash it away. Where would we be without scripture's transformative and revealing effect? And I believe Herbert's even making an allusion here to a foil of narcissists. There's a, a myth of in the Greek uh, you know, uh, mythology of this man, this young man named Narcissus, who scorned all the people who loved him. He was never satisfied with anyone who, you know, loved him or befriended him, whether it be filial love or, or you know, eros. He was never happy with it because he was so self-satisfied. And he gets tricked by one of the other gods to come and look at a pool. And, and Narcissus looks at this pool And he just continues to gaze at his own image. And he becomes self-infatuated to the point where he falls in to the pool. In some stories, he just dies. But in most of them, he falls in. And he, he does so because he's so captivated with his own image. And I think Herbert is kind of maybe subtly referring to this because he's actually saying 
there should be a natural reversion to what the scripture shows in us. The sinner who sees what he looks like in the mirror of God's word should naturally recoil against and away from that image, being repulsed by it. And yet, as Herbert says, it washes what it shows. Unlike Narcissus who dies by drowning in, the scriptures bids us to jump in and be washed. This is what I believe this poem, and, and I believe Herbert is actually just trying to, to bring James to life a little bit through poetry. The point is that James calls his hearers to do what Narcissus did, but in a totally different way. Not to look to be self-infatuated, but to look to see those portions of life, those parts of my character, desires, nature, way of behavior, way of relating to others that are against God's law. Look closely at this verse. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. I think James is calling them to peer with long fixed gaze into the scriptures. And he calls them the perfect law, the law of liberty. Now, what is James talking about when he's saying the perfect law, the law of liberty? Is he talking about the old religious code, which is external? No, I believe he's speaking of it, but in a certain context. James is describing the whole of God's truth as his word and as the law. Verse 19 says, be quick to hear. Hear what? The word of God. Verse 21, receive with what? Receive with meekness what? The implanted word. Verse 22, be doers of the word. Verse 23, if you are a hearer of the word and not a doer, and then he gets to verse 25 and he uses the word law. Does he mean something different than the word? No. And in fact, I use this phrase, I've learned from others, to use the phrase the law dash word. Because what I believe James is saying is that this law of liberty is the, the whole counsel of God, which includes God's moral law as contained in the scriptures, but only in this sense as it's been applied by the Holy Spirit to be written on a man's heart and not just on a letter. This is not merely the external letter, which we know cannot produce a righteousness. However, the whole promise of the new covenant, the whole promise of what the, the Israelites were granted through Jeremiah's prophecy was that God would take that external code written on stone and he would translate it on hearts of flesh. He would take out the heart of stone, put a new heart of flesh on it, and then write the law into it. Now, is James therefore saying you should look inward for the perfect law? No. He's saying you should look to the word of God and receive it, but receive it in this context, to want to do it and to commit to do it. James describes God's law as perfect and the law of liberty. And we know from the rest of the scriptures that this is what Paul also uses. Paul at one point says, the law is righteous, holy, and good. We know that he tells Timothy, the law has a lawful use and there is an unlawful use. The unlawful use of the law is to try to take the law, perform it in order to earn justification, in order to earn favor with God. But the lawful use of the law is for the law to reveal what is in us and cause us to seek Christ. As, as Galatians told us, the law was given that it might be our tutor to lead us to Christ, to show us that we need someone who could come and deliver us from our sin and our apathy against righteousness. That's part of our sin. 
is an apathy towards God's commands. Note, James is not referring to some separate, mystically defined portion of Scripture, but the entirety of God's word to man concerning sin, righteousness, sanctification, and regeneration and holy living. I believe that is what James is saying. He's saying the law, the perfect law of liberty. That is to say, the law as it's been perfected by the Holy Spirit applying it to a person's life so as to do it. In order that his hearers might appreciate his warnings, James then applies his teaching in a test, giving a very clear proof of false religion. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Have you ever heard the sound of a stone falling from a really high place? And sometimes if it's a weak stone, like a a slate stone or a brick, it'll shatter. We had some AC work done at our house, and they had to drill through our, our wall, which was two bricks deep. And the drill they used and the hole they cut was so large and so loud, I heard it all the way at the top of our house when they were doing it in the basement. In my mind, these verses are like that. God's word, which is like a fire and a hammer, breaks the rocks. This is like a ton of bricks landing upon you. If you can understand what he's saying. Those who do not bridle their tongue are deceiving themselves and they have a worthless religion. Woe are we if, if, if not for the grace of God. This is an amazing quality and test that James puts forth to his hearers. He's saying, if you're still not bridling your tongue, your religion needs to be proved. It needs to be demonstrated. It needs to be made present and clear. There ought to be, I think, what James is calling for, a deep repentance, which acknowledges the righteous accusation, which is, I claim to know God, and yet I curse my brother. First John tells us the same thing. If we claim to love God, who we haven't seen, but, but hate our brother, who we have seen, we're deceiving ourselves. Those whose speech does not exemplify the fruit of the Spirit are absent the Spirit. And I don't think that's pressing James's verse too far. I think that's what he's saying. Many read this verse, and they think it concerns swearing alone, but the tongue is much more dangerous than the occasional word used for cursing or word used for swearing. It also includes lies, jealousies, backbiting, and slander. This is why it's so important to be so precious and careful with your words. It, it, it is important. It is a mark of maturity to not let your tongue go wild. And in fact, we're going to see James brings this up in a very long portion in chapter 3, which we'll, we'll get to. But what he's saying here is that if you claim to have a form of religion, and yet that religion does not result in a sanctification of the tongue and speech, your religion is, is a lie. It's false. And woe are we, all of us are, are condemned under this sentence. Woe are we if this was the final word of us. Instead, James commends works of charity and holy living as a proof of authentic religion. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Just that really clearly, I just want to state, if you're not visiting orphans and widows, I don't think James is saying you're damned. What I think James is saying is this is the nature and quality of this sort of religion, that 
that religion should result in works of charity. If you, if you work in a, in a male prison and you're spreading the gospel in that prison, does James then say you're not doing the right thing because you're not going to orphans and widows, you're going to men? I don't think that's what James is saying. Just to be clear, I think he's saying this is a mark. As in, if you had to take the temperature of religion and you found this, that would be proof. Why? Because that sort of activity, ministering to those who cannot repay you, is not done by someone who's working in the flesh. It can only be done through a heart that's been transformed by the grace of God. And then he goes on to add to it, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. How prudish James sounds to modern hearers. To keep oneself unstained from the world. James, we've got to be salt and light out there. We can't be keeping ourselves from the world. We have to be in conversation with modern man. We need to have a dialogue between the faiths. And we need to get together so that we can have a greater understanding between Jews and Christians, between Muslims and Christians. There needs to be more empathy on both sides the modern man would say to James. And yet, James says this is a mark of true religion, to keep oneself unstained from the world. Christians today often desire to do spiritual things, but don't want to do works of compassion. They would really like to have Bible studies, times of worship, maybe even give a little bit, but really they're focused on their own inner spirituality. James is saying real spirituality gets worked out to those around you. Likewise, modern Christians would recoil at the thought that they even could be stained by the world. They would presume themselves to be, I'm justified. I'm already cleansed. I don't need to watch myself as I live this, in, in this world. But James is saying, no, true spirituality is watchful. It watches so that it is not polluted by creeping doctrine. That is to say, we just need to create more empathy with those around us, and then they'll hear the gospel. Or we just need to lessen the requirements of Christian righteousness in in sexuality, and then we'll reach the LGBT world. This is what a large section of the church is currently entertaining. If you remember the book of Galatians, the the reason Paul warned against the heresy was they had begun to entertain it. Not all in Galatia had received circumcision, but they were sitting under that teaching. And I think the vast majority of the, the church in the United States is maybe not promoting this yet, but I believe we are entertaining the conversation too long. Am I saying we shouldn't love sinners? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we must not let ourselves be deceived and begin to take on the thinking and ways of the world around us, but instead we should be concerned with keeping ourselves unstained from the world. That is the way the world thinks, the way the world advocates, the way the world dismisses sin, the way the world crushes the weak and and praises the powerful. All of that, everything, whether it be economics or you know, pop culture or social ethics, all of those things which the world promotes as being good, we must be extremely wary that we, not, that we do not begin to live in that sort of corruption. Likewise, with what we watch, what we hear, the way we entertain ourselves, the way we discuss, even our use of sport, everything has to be done through the filter of, am I being true to Christ? 
right now while interacting with this thing. I think that's what James is commending. That sort of watchfulness that does not just have this naivete that anything is just, if it, not, if it isn't overtly a cult or, or a false religion, that it is neutral. I think what James is saying is there is no such thing as neutral. So, the question is this. Should we take James's words to heart and do them, or should we dismiss them as presuming to be above reproach, above the, the susceptibility to these sort of warnings? I believe that would be to be a hearer of the word and not a doer. I believe to be a hearer of the word and a doer is to recognize the points in which my life does not reconcile with a life marked by the gospel, and then to, by God's grace alone, to repent and make amends. That, I believe, is what being a doer of the word is. And if, if you understand where the sort of grace and energy comes from, you will understand James is not advocating a works religion. James is advocating being a hearer and then letting that word take root and be, being a receiver of it so that it becomes manifest through our lives. So let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would give us this sort of grace, the grace not to just hear your word, not to just see the points in which our lives are out of step with the gospel, but that we would, through looking in the perfect law and seeing our image in it, we would understand ourselves as being out of step in an area or two, and that by your grace, which is revealing to us our sin and our immaturity, Lord, that you would cause us to become doers of the word. Lord, we pray for what James is asking or telling his hearers. We pray for compassion for widows and orphans. We pray for the sort of zeal and watchfulness that would keep ourselves unstained. We ask, Lord, that we would be a pleasing, distinct, and fragrant aroma to you, that as we live as both individual Christians and even as a whole church together, that we would be what James calls doers of the word. In Christ's name and for his glory, we ask these things. Amen.